so glad that the senior adult team put this together. You you got some great topics, and um, not counting me, some great speakers to come in and talk with you about some important topics. And these are important things we're talking about. Uh, of course, the topic for today, and I remember from university life, giving a professor a 1.30 or 2 o'clock p.m. class was the way you insulted a professor. <laughs> I mean, I know this is nap time. I hope you got some caffeine. I hope you got some caffeine before you made your way in here. Anyway, uh, what, what I was asked to talk about is the biblical perspective on, on death and dying on death and the next life. Uh, you, got, you know the other topics that are coming up. Uh, some of the, you may think some of the other topics are more practical than this, but it should not surprise you that I think theology is preeminently practical. Everything we do in life flows out of what we believe, what we think, how we see life and death. So I think theology is preeminently practical. Um, but we are going to be talking about a lot of, I, I will get to return, and this will be fun, I will get to return at one point and help you do something I've done hundreds of times, help you plan your funeral a little bit. Or actually who I'm going to be helping is your family by having a conversation with you about thinking in advance to when that time will come. But today, sort of the biblical perspective on death, dying, uh, and the afterlife. I've, I've passed around the room some handouts. Uh, I don't know if we ran out. Does everybody have a copy? Can you lay eyes on one of the handouts I passed around? I think there's supposed to be enough for the room. Um, I've just got some things on this sheet about death and dying and, and, and the afterlife. Um, part of the reason I have this sheet, my goal is to talk for about 30 minutes, and then I want to do, do questions and answers. Um, this sheet helps me focus uh, my time. So look at your sheet. I'm starting out with, how many of you have ever attended a funeral at Weston Memorial Church? Okay, at least for six years that I've been here, I'm into my seventh year, this opening paragraph's been in all the bulletins for the funerals. Uh, so please tell me you noticed but this has been in all the bulletins for funerals since I, since I arrived because we're in a, an increasingly post-Christian, secularized culture. And I know that when I'm conducting a funeral, the worship service surrounding a funeral, I know I've got a lot of worldviews um, sitting in front of me. So what I put in the bulletin six-plus years ago is this. I tried to encapsulate it in one paragraph. The very center of the gospel focuses upon the victory over death by God in Jesus Christ. As his followers, we are convinced that we share in that victory over the grave. We affirm that at death, the believer lives in the presence of God, who is, who is an eternal home. Nothing, not even death, can separate us from the love of God in Christ. So death is not the end. Rather, it is the beginning of a fuller existence that will be completed in the resurrection. Will be completed in the resurrection of the body. This hope is not based on our worthiness, but on the grace of God. What I'm saying there, I'm saying this. This pertains to those who are in Christ. This is our Christian hope. Now, you notice if you're in a traditional church and you do something like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. 
or the Athanasius Creed. You, you profess faith. When you think about the Apostles' Creed, there's one line in that Apostles' Creed. We believe in everlasting life. We believe that the human being, by nature, by creation, uh, by the esteem that God has for the human being, we believe in everlasting life. Every human being will live for eternity. The question is, from a theological perspective, what's your zip code going to be? But every human being lives for eternity. So at the core of Christianity is thought, theology, doctrine, philosophy over how we overcome the human predicament, how we overcome death. And uh, that's the best I could do with a one-paragraph simple statement that I can include in bulletins that says it's something that's given to us by Christ. We have to receive it. It's as a result of the death of Christ that we overcome death. Um, But that's a little encapsulation of what I think about Christian theology. But then notice the next question I've got on your sheet here. This is probably where we have to start with anybody in this contemporary age. I have to ask you the question, how do we know what we know? And you just stop right there. How do we know what we know? Or how do we know about heaven and hell? That's one of the most important questions a human being can ever ask. How do we know? How do you know what you know? Do you know it because your grandma told you? And you really like your grandma, so if she told it to you, it has to be true. How, as, as, philosophically, that's called epistemology. How do we know what we know? How do you know what you know? I haven't visited heaven. I'm getting ready to tell you all about it. How do we know what we know? Uh, that's been one of the most uh, basic philosophical questions throughout our history. You know, and a lot of people just know what they know, and they never thought to ask the question, how do I know what I know? You know, they may just know what they know because, you know, somebody said something to them when they were five years old and they never got over it. How do we know what we know? Now, hopefully it shouldn't shock anybody in this environment. As a Christian, as a Christian pastor, you're sitting in a building with a cross on top. Our basic core conviction is we know what we know because we have a God who loves us so much that God has communicated with us. You know, our God is not a silent God. Our God is not a removed God. We have a God that loves us so much that our God has communicated with us. We call that the Bible. I know maybe even in this room I might have to introduce some of you to that. But we call that the Bible. We believe that is God's revelation of God's self to us. Uh, In all your historic Articles of faith, we say the Bible is sufficient for faith and practice. So, you know, when we in the Christian community talk about how do we know what we know, it's not because we got in a spaceship and found heaven somewhere. God, God, we believe that we believe in God, that's sort of basic, but we believe in a God who reveals himself. He tells us things. And what he's told us is included in what we call sacred scriptures of the Bible. If I didn't start with that basic conviction, I'd have nothing to say. I have no firsthand experience of heaven. And I don't want to ever have any experience of hell. So if I didn't have that basic conviction that what makes me a Christian is my epistemology that what I know, I know because the Bible has revealed it to me. I mean, I, I can't get it off CNN. I can't get it off Fox News or MSNBC. 
So obviously what I'm getting ready to talk to you about, what's in that opening paragraph, is sort of a consummation of, of orthodox biblical teaching. All thing I mean by orthodox is sort of the mainstream of biblical teaching. We, we have defined orthodoxy for 2,000 years uh, as that which is believed by most Christians in most places throughout history. That's orthodoxy. So if you ever hear me say anything that is original, fire me. <laughs> yeah, but we don't do original thinking. That's called heresy, by the way, in the Christian community. Um, we, but what I'm offering you is orthodox Christian thought, which again, we can say what we say because we believe that God is real. God is God. God has revealed himself to us, and we trust him. Like the Apostle Paul said, let every man be a liar, but God can't be. We don't believe God lied. So uh, there's a lot in the Bible about eternal life. There's over 500 verses about eternal life in the Bible. Now, if you discount the Bible, then you can discount everything I say from this point on. But in the Bible, there's about over 500 verses, past verses, about eternal life, particularly heaven. So um, I start with that. How do we know what we know? Where, where do I... You know, I, I'm, I'm not telling you, I did learn it in some of my schools, in some schools better than others, but it's, it's, it's what we believe God has revealed to us. Now, if you, you can just disagree with that, then you can discount anything I'm getting ready to say from this point on. But what I'm going to offer you is sort of orthodox Christian thought about heaven or hell. So, next question. And I, I notice these two questions that are going to come side by side. Because this is where I see Orthodox Christianity confusing most people. First question, what happens to our spirits when we die? And the second question, when and what is the resurrection of the body? This is where we Orthodox Christians start confusing people. Well, first question, what happens to our spirits when we die? The verse that I've given you there is a famous verse. You almost quote it probably. That's uh, Jesus on the cross. He's got a thief on either side of him. The one thief professes faith. In Jesus, by saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your what? Kingdom. Kingdom. He's acknowledging Jesus as a king. He's professing faith in Jesus. So he says to Jesus, as all three dying there, you know, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus responded by saying what? This day. day. You will be with me in paradise. The word paradise, which is one of the words for heaven, uh, is a Persian loan word that the Jews picked up when they were in exile. It literally means a beautiful walled garden. That's what paradise means. And it came over into um, Jewish and the Christian usage. Uh, But notice Jesus said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. Now, to help illustrate that a little bit, there is a few fringe groups... Who, who deny that you go to heaven immediately upon death. Uh, only two fringe groups. Um, one is Seventh-day Adventist, and the other is Jehovah's Witnesses. So I've asked my Jehovah's Witness friends, what do you do with this verse? Where Jesus looks at the thief on the cross and says, this day you'll be with me in paradise. You know what their answer has been to me? It's a question. This day? You're going to be with me in paradise? I think it's an affirmation. Now, granted, in the Greek, there's no, there's no punctuation marks. 
question mark, or exclamation point. But we historically have taken this as an, as an affirmation. This day you'll be with me in paradise. Paul certainly believed it. Look at the next verse. Paul said, and in Philippians, he was in prison. He thought he was facing death. He, we think, got out of that imprisonment and dies later. But he thinks he's facing death. And in, in, in when he writes the church at Philippi, Paul's probably in prison, probably in prison in, in Rome. So Philippians 1, 21 through 23, Paul says, as he's facing his own death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what I choose, I, yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell, for I'm hard-pressed between the two. Having the desire to depart, and not do nothing for a thousand years, but to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Uh, to be absent from the bodies, be present with the Lord. That's Paul. So uh, Paul obviously thought that when you die, your spirit, spirit slash soul, um, goes into the presence of God. Um, we, most Christians in this culture get that, have no problem with that. But from traditional Orthodox theology, we have, that's called heaven. We die, our spirit goes to heaven, we are kept in joy and bliss and fullness in the full presence of God. That's pretty much Orthodox Christianity. Um, most Christians kind of get that. But what they've lost is the fact that for 2,000 years, we have called heaven, the heaven you go to at death, the intermediate state. We've always called it the intermediate state, not the final destination. Intermediate state. That's always been the theological term for where you go upon death. In other words, when you die and your spirit goes to be with the Lord, that's not your final movement. You don't just go to heaven, find you a cloud and a harp, and hang out from now on. Um, so heaven's the intermediate state. You're, you're, notice I keep saying your soul, your spirit goes to heaven. I'll, we'll watch the bodies go elsewhere. But your spirit and your soul goes to heaven. Most contemporary Americans, American Christians, Western Christians, get that. Unless you're Seventh-day Adventist Jehovah's Witness. They believe the body, they believe in soul sleep. Your body and your soul does not disconnect. They stay together and they rest in the grave until the final end. Because part of where that comes from is the Bible doesn't say, I gave you two verses there, one from Luke, one from Philippians. The Bible does not say a great deal about where you go at the moment of death. The Bible actually says a whole lot more about the resurrection of the body. Go back to Ezekiel 37, you know, dim bones, dim bones that come back together. The Bible says a whole lot more about resurrection of the body. Um, that's why Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, Seventh-day Adventists, they just kind of let you soul sleep till the resurrection. We know the resurrection is a future event. That's clear in, in Christian theology. The resurrection is a future event. When you, in a traditional church, do a creed and you say... You believe in the resurrection of the... That's not a metaphor for ongoing spiritual existence. You believe in the resurrection of the body. Body. So what confuses people, if you look at historic liturgies, worship services regarding funerals, usually when we're in the worship setting, let's say sanctuary, 
We are focusing, the text, the prayers is focusing on where your spirit goes at death. Heaven, presence of God. To be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. Then, you know, we go somewhere else sometimes. I take you to a columbarium. I take your remains to a columbarium. I take your remains to a cemetery. Um, I've never done this, but I guess I could bury you at sea. But we do something with the, with the remains. Now, in those settings, it sounds... We, we talk about resurrection of the body. So, where the Christian community because we're part Jewish and part Greek, where the Christian community confuses people, because people are rather simple-minded, do we live, do we go to heaven upon death, or do we believe in the resurrection of the body at the end of history? And the right answer is both. That's right. You have lived through the last 50 years in the West, by West, I mean Western Europe, United States, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. In the last 50 years, you have lived through a resurgence of Christians understanding, remembering that we believe in the resurrection of the body. Because, you know, particularly look at 100 years ago, heaven appeared to be the final destination. That's just what it appeared to be 100 years ago because we totally, you know, every culture has to, as I'm a Protestant, as a Protestant, the, one, of the, one of the statements of the Protestant movement early on was forever reforming, not just forever reforming, but forever reforming according to the Word of God. Because we get further, human nature pulls us away from the Word of God. So, yeah, I can name people like N.T. Wright is a, is a great contemporary Orthodox New Testament scholar who helped the Christian church say, don't forget that resurrection of the body bit. The Bible is clear, maybe not simple, but the Bible is clear. Your spirit, your soul goes immediately into the presence of God. That's the intermediate state. It is wonderful. It is perfect. It is great. Don't diminish it. But you're going to go from glory to glory. You're going to go from grace to grace. At the end of history, when Christ consummates his kingdom, when Christ consummates his kingdom, your spirit will be reunited with your body. Uh, you'll have that glorified body. You've read the Easter accounts. You know, Paul talks at length in 1 Corinthians 15 about what the resurrection body looks like. And basically he's telling you it looks like Jesus' resurrection body. Jesus could pass into rooms without opening locked doors. You know the Bible. He could do that. But at the same time, he ate breakfast. Remember the fish for breakfast on the Sea of Galilee? There was something remarkably different about Jesus, but he still had his scars from the crucifixion. So he still has his body. It is a glorified body. That's our resurrection body. So when Christ finishes his work one day, you know, you pray this too, by the way. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come where? On earth. On earth. On earth as in heaven. What we're looking forward to is when heaven comes to earth one day. When, when heaven, heaven's that place where God's perfect will is done. We know that. Well, guess what? One day, heaven's going to engulf earth. You know, that's not a futile prayer that you're praying. Thy will be done, and it's sort of said the same way at different time. thy will be done on earth as it is being done right now in heaven. There's going to come a day where God's will will be done as perfectly on earth as is being done perfectly right now in heaven. That's 
the end of history. That's the consummation. That's the second coming. That's the gathering together of the saints to Christ. So we, we think linearly. Uh, and we also hold those, we hold those two together. Now for some people, that, that, that's too much tension. You know, the culture around us is super spiritual. So they get the ongoing spiritual existence. But because the culture has increasingly, as it's become secular, has become kind of spiritual, not necessarily Christian, but spiritual, um, what's been lost, has been recaptured, is our convictions about the resurrection of the body. When the work of Jesus Christ is finally complete one day, when the work of the cross is finally complete, all of creation will be redeemed. All of the earth will be redeemed. Your dog will be redeemed. That crepe myrtle that makes a mess out there will be redeemed. All of creation will be redeemed. World without end. Amen, amen. That's, we, we say that, we sing that, but some people think you die and you go to heaven, end of story. It's better than that. It's better than that. And if you think dying and going to heaven, your soul just going to heaven. And that's wonderful. That's amazing. That's great. But don't diminish the work of Christ by stopping it at that point. Uh, you know, the, the final vision, go look at Revelation 21, 22, which is we returned to the Garden of Eden. But we're not just returned to the Garden of Eden. You know, we left the garden. We, we messed up, if you don't realize. We, we left the garden. When you look at Revelation 21 and 22, we're, and again, the same language is there. The tree of life is there. So we're returned to the Garden of Eden, but we're returned to the Garden of Eden on steroids at that point. So what we're going to is far better than anything we've lost um, in Adam and Eve. So, um, yeah, you're going from glory to glory, from grace to grace. That's why Paul said, you know, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I've, I've asked groups before, let's play with that phrase. For me to live is Christ and die is gain. Just think about it, honestly, quietly in your brain. For me to live is blank and to die is blank. Now, I know some people, they were serious about filling that in. They would say, for me to live is NASCAR, and to die is a terrible thing. That's, that's what people think. You know, I, I've said it enough, people have stopped doing this around me. But I'll say it again because some of you may want to do this around me. Sometimes when I wish people happy birthday, they'll say, what's well, better than the alternative? <laughs> and if I'm in a bad mood, I say, not if you're in Christ. It really is not if you're in Christ. For me to die is gain. Now this, this is Christian conviction. The world's not going to help you do this. The world's not going to help you embrace this. The world's not going to help you believe this. This is what God has revealed to us. And it takes God and grace and the work of the Holy Spirit to make this our reality. Let the promise, what we're about in human life, let the promises of God, let the promises of God, let the presence of God, this is what we're after. Let the promises of God, let the presence of God become more real to you than your sin or your circumstances. I mean, I know we're captured by this world around us. We're captured. I mean, there is a tragic aspect to death, but we're the only voice that can say to the rest of the world, it's not a complete tragedy if you die in Christ. Um, I've watched a lot of people die. My wife has watched a lot of people die. And both of us would say to you, people die differently. 
People die differently. And sometimes it's medical reasons. But, you know, for people who have a firm conviction that what God has said is truer than anything they feel, what God has said is truer than anything circumstances might be teaching them, they can die with a confidence. They can die with a peace. If I'd have been Lazarus, I'd have been so ill with Martha and Mary for bringing me back. But Jesus had a point to prove at that point. But, you know, what we're on in the spiritual life is letting the promises and the presence of God become more real to us than our sin, than our circumstances. Um, now I can do the rest pretty quick. I got, you some, I got you some quotations here that I'm stopping to what kind of questions you have. Um, and, of course, how do we gain access to heaven? I just know what I know through... God's revelation, I, I could make something up differently, but the Bible teaches that Christ is the path to heaven. Christ brings us into unity with heaven. Um, so, you know, the, the basis of the church is Christ is the way to the Father. Don't look for other ways. I'm always amazed at people who are trying to figure, is there not, there's got to be some other way. And they're worried about somebody somewhere out there who didn't know about Christ. Well, let God take care of them. But you know, you know that Christ is the way to the Father, so you just, you just take care of yourself. You know, a lot of times uh, if people tell me to go after, let's say, Catholics for something they're doing. I always tell them, by the time I finish with the Methodists, it's time to go home and go to bed. Um, yeah, don't worry about what if other people. You know that faith in Christ brings you to the Father. The Bible is clear about that. Is clear. The Bible doesn't tell us everything, but the Bible tells us everything we need to know. So anyway, that's how, that's how you gain heaven. I haven't said much about, again, we believe in everlasting life for every human being. Uh, and the Bible is very clear. You know who the person in the Bible is that spoke the most about hell? Jesus. Not Paul. Jesus. The whole concept of hell comes from Jesus. Uh, Paul says very little about it. But where, where the concept of hell came from is the teachings of Jesus. If you, if you are in a relationship with God right now, guess what? It continues. If you're not in a relationship with God, God is so respectful to the human being, he'll let you have what you want. One of my favorite quotations, I'm getting ready to leave you with quotations. And I, I'm looking to see if it's on the sheet. It's not. Some of you that have done C.S. Lewis with me, the greatest defender of the Christian faith in the 20th century, you know my favorite C.S. Lewis quotation comes from The Great Divorce, which is a fantasy about heaven and hell. Uh, George MacDonald in The Great Divorce says this, In the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says, Thy will be done. God will give you exactly what you want. You know, when I see people who hate to go to church, hell, heaven's going to be a real bummer for them. It really is. You know, God will give you what you desire. God will give you the desires of your heart. So um, let me just throw these quotations out to you. Um, didn't want to just give you C.S. Lewis quotations. I gave you one from St. Augustine. The first one is from St. Augustine's massive book uh, that develop, helped develop Christian theology that's entitled The City of God. Uh, he finished it in 426 A.D. Um, and this is the standard stuff that we've been saying for 2,000 years. God himself shall be our reward. 
Heaven's not the stuff that we get there. Heaven is, heaven is Him. God Himself shall be our reward. As there is nothing greater or better than God Himself, God has promised us Himself. Now, I know there are people around the world that might be looking for a lot of virgins in the next life. In the Christian faith, what makes heaven heaven is the full presence of God. God has promised us Himself. What else can be meant by His Word through the prophets? I will be your God and you will be my people. Then I shall be their satisfaction. I shall be all that people honorably desire, life, health, nourishment, satisfaction, glory, honor, peace, all good things. This too is the right interpretation of the saying of the apostle, Paul, that God, one day that God may be all in all. God shall be the end or the, 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 the goal of all our desires, who will, who, will, who will be seen without end, loved without ceasing, and praised without worthy, without weariness. Uh, that's that's just a paragraph of how St. Augustine described heaven. Uh, Letters to Malcolm, written by C.S. Lewis, uh, concludes, and this is almost the last thing C.S. Lewis wrote before he died, joy is the serious business of heaven. That's what heaven's about. Early in C.S. Lewis's life, he wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. Good book. I recommend everything C.S. Lewis wrote. In that book, he said, to enter heaven is to become more human than you ever succeed in being on earth. Your place in heaven will be made for you and you alone because you were made for it, made for it stitch by stitch as a glove is made to fit the hand. We were made for heaven. We weren't made for this earth. This world, this physical world, is the shadowlands of the real world that is somewhere else. Now we get confused. We think this is the real world. This is not the real world. This is the Shadowlands. Some of you may have seen the great movie about C.S. Lewis entitled Shadowlands. It was about the death of his wife. Um, but we, we, we forget the real world is elsewhere. This, this is but an imitation of the real world. But heaven is what you were made for. Heaven is where you'll become the person you were created to be. Heaven will, become, will be the place where you, you receive all that God has for you. I don't think you've received it here. You'll receive it there. Uh, Mere Christianity is probably the most famous book. He said this, If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians... It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all the other stuff will be added to you. If you seek first all the other stuff, you may miss heaven. Uh, Again, from mere Christianity, the fact that our heart yearns for something earth cannot supply is proof that heaven must be our home. Uh, It was Augustine who said, Our hearts are restless until they rest in Thee, O God. If you haven't experienced some dissatisfaction with this life, I worry about you. If you haven't experienced some sense there's got to be something else, if you haven't experienced that this this world doesn't always feel like home to you, the fact that you do experience that stuff, you have a dissatisfaction, a discontentment. We we just don't think it's got to be better. 
the reason you experience that is because there is another world you were created for. You know, if you, God created you with hunger, so aren't you glad God gave us food? Can you imagine being created with the sense of hunger and there be no food? Or the sense of, sense of thirst and nothing to drink? Well, if you, you are created with a sense of dissatisfaction with this world, and that, C.S. Lewis says, is one of the greater proofs there's got to be another world. We weren't created for this world. And I think everybody knows that. You either, you either fill that ache with the work of Christ, or you can use drugs or narcotics or food. The list goes on. We self-medicate in so many ways. But we all try to self-medicate and, and ease the pain because there's something in our gut that says there's something out of kilter, out of sync with life in this world. And then the last one, how many of you ever read that book by Max Lucado? You know, I was, I was amazed at the first book that man ever wrote. And then he just kept churning them out, and they were all, they've all been as good. Uh, he has a book called The Applause of Heaven. And I love how the book ends, and that's what I've given you there. At the end of the book, it, he, he's writing about what it may be like, you know, to take that final breath on earth and then take that next breath there in heaven. Um, and this is what he's saying to kind of help you think about that. You'll be home soon, too. You may not have noticed it, but you're closer to home than ever before. Each, mo- each moment is a step taken. Each breath is a page turned. Each day is a mile marked, a mountain climbed. You are closer to home than you've ever been. Before you know it, your appointed arrival time will come. You'll descend the ramp and enter the city, no cities capitalized. You'll see faces that are waiting for you. Yes, I do believe we know each other and we know our loved ones. The Bible's pretty clear about that one too. You'll, you'll see faces that are waiting for you. You'll hear your name spoken by those who love you. And maybe, just maybe, in the back, behind the crowds, the one, again, capitalized O, the one who would rather die than live without you will remove his pierced hands from his heavenly robe and applaud. But Jeff, mm. we won't see those loved ones as soon as we, if our spirit is just there mm. to begin with, we will not. We'll see their spirits. Will we? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, for instance, yeah, I mean, you got stuff in the Bible like um, Lazarus was still Lazarus in his intermediate state, Right. He didn't come back and was John Smith. I mean, Lazarus is still Lazarus in his intermediate state. Um, you know, Jesus says stuff like in the kingdom, and this could be either intermediate or in, we'll sit at table with Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. Um, so there, we, we don't lose our personality. Now, what the spiritual... You know, Paul actually coined a phrase that no one's ever used, except Paul. A spiritual body. Think about it. The Greek world has said, you can't do both. Paul coined the word, a spiritual body. So I think we know each other in heaven, and it just keeps going from glory to glory, from grace to grace. Because I can't imagine going to heaven and know less there than I know here. I hope I'm not going to get more stupid when I pass to the other side. <laughs> I mean, I think we'll know more there than here. Um, because I don't want to, you know, the Christian faith said, don't diminish heaven. It's not the final destination. 
but don't diminish it. I think if, if, I mean, you think for a moment, what, what is necessary for your joy and your bliss? I think God would give you that. Heaven's a place of joy and bliss. What is necessary for your joy and bliss? I think most of us would put people in that category. Um, if, 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 if somehow, if somehow, because again, the Bible doesn't say much about the intermediate state, believe it or not. Those two verses I gave you are about it. It says a lot about the resurrection state. If you don't know people in the intermediate state, it can't diminish the bliss or the joy. If you don't know people in the intermediate state, um, you'll know them in the final state. Um, but I think you'll know them in the intermediate state. I'm not sure why I wouldn't. Not, that's an interesting question. But I hope I'm smarter when I leave than, you know. By the way, the Bible does not teach you're going to know everything, ever. Only God is omniscient. Be grateful you're never going to know everything. You'll, you'll know what you need to know. And there'll be some things that you'll be grateful that you don't know. Jesus answered that question. Don't you remember that in the Bible? The Pharisees tried to trap. That's good question. What what Jesus is saying in that paragraph where the Pharisees are trying to trap them and say, "Here's a here's a person's had multiple wives. Who who who's going to be married in heaven?" And that's when Paul said, Jesus says, "You'll be neither married nor given in marriage, and you'll be in heaven as the angels." Now, I don't think that means you don't know anybody. What that means is, this is what I tell my wife anyway, I will, because I think part of the heavenly existence too, I will perfectly love my wife. But guess what? I'll perfectly love you too there. In earth, I don't mean to disappoint you, but on earth, I love my wife more than I love you folks. But in heaven, that's why marriage, and again, the other reason Jesus said that, which just blows modern's minds from a historic, not complete, but from a, another reason why you're not going to be marrying in heaven, from a historic Christian perspective, what's the purpose of marriage? Procreation. Yeah. We've always said the first purpose of marriage is procreation. That's why in the Book of Common Prayer that's, that we Protestants have had since the 16th century, at the end of the service, there's, there's two prayers of blessing of the marriage. One is the normal prayer of blessing, where at least at that point we prayed that God would help you um, multiply. Um, then there was another prayer that was an optional prayer in case you were marrying somebody for whom it would be foolish for me to say, go forth and multiply. You know, if you're like 95 years old and I'm marrying you. So we do have the, but you know, the 95 year olds are the exception. Um, the, the, the standard is marriage is for procreation. So again, we're not going to be procreating in heaven because you don't get into heaven that way. Keep going. I love your questions. But growing up, I remember us preachers talking about we'd all be brothers and sisters in heaven rather than families. We'll love completely and perfectly in heaven. So I won't have certain... I mean, I even love my children better than I love you folks. I mean, right now I've got people that I kind of love better than... But in heaven, we're going to do it right for everybody. And, you know, that's why don't diminish the spouse in heaven. Just elevate the rest of the crowd. You know, because again, I think heaven has to be perfection. Jeff, when we die and we're in heaven, 
That's, you know, um, that's when I said no human being will ever know everything. Only God is omniscient. Um, you'll be glad you don't know some things. I think whatever makes for your bliss and your joy is what you'll know in heaven. You know, I don't think um, you could be, a, I mean, heaven couldn't be heaven if I'm watching my family screw up on earth. I mean, it just couldn't be. Um, so I think God is, that's part of the love and the grace of God. Nothing can separate us from that love. He, he's going to take care of that. I'm, I'm glad I won't, I'll never know everything. You know, um, we'll know more. Can we communicate with the cardinal that shows up or the hummingbird? <laughs> the Bible says be a little careful about that stuff. Okay. Remember when Saul went to the medium? The, the, you know what a medium is. It's not like a medium in size, but a medium that does hocus pocus. When Saul went to the medium and called forth Samuel from the dead because King Saul thought he needed some help. Do you remember how that story ends for King Saul? Does not end well. He loses his kingdom. Yeah, again, we, what we don't know much about and is, is, is any trafficking between... Jesus talks about there being a great abyss between this world and the world to come or between heaven and hell even. Yeah, Orthodox Christianity gets a little nervous with your relatives visiting you on a regular basis from heaven. It is necromancy. The Bible has a term for it. Now, you know, God, I'll say this quickly though. God is so good, God will give you what you need. C.S. Lewis, who, if you know the story of C.S. Lewis, he married late in life, Shadowlands, as soon as he finally married as an old confirmed bachelor, his wife developed cancer, she died. Go watch the movie. Anthony Hopkins is a great C.S. Lewis. Deborah Winger is a great uh, Joy Davidman. He was so distraught. He, he, and I have great respect for C.S. Lewis, he believes that he saw joy, that, David, that joy visited him. Now, what I would tend to say, and I, Jack didn't say much about it, but I think if you set Jack Lewis down, he'd say, and I don't know that it was really her coming back, because that's a demotion for her, but it brought great comfort to Jack. It brought great comfort to Jack. And I've had experiences like that. We, Tammy and I have a child in heaven. And um, Tammy had a dream, vision, whatever you want to call it, about six months after, after the child died, had a, had a, of, of Jesus holding the baby, holding our baby. I don't know if anybody had a Polaroid camera and sent that down to her, but God gave her that because she needed it. She needed, she needed that. It's a closure, isn't it? God's so good in so many ways. Um, Even the cardinal, I know what you're talking about. I've read the little book. Um, That could be a gift from God. Um, Yeah. What else? What was it that C.S. Lewis said about uh, the title page and the table of contents was like earth and then Heaven would be like the rest of the book. Yeah, one of my favorite spots is at the end of um, one of the Chronicles of Narnia. He says, everything here is a prelude. Everything here is like a table of contents. When we get there, when we get there, it's going to be like an eternal, he's British, an eternal holiday. You know, school's out. You get to do what you want to do. And, by the way, 
I always hesitate to do this. When you think about the intermediate kingdom, and when you think about the kingdom that is to come, finally, now we human beings, we have these things called calendars. We know time. We know beginning, middle, end. To God and to the spiritual realm, God doesn't keep a daytimer. God is in the eternal present. We've said that for 2,000 years, just to make everybody wonder. There's no past, present, future for God. So there's a sense in which in the mind of God, everything's just present. So the intermediate kingdom and the kingdom to come is sort of already there in the mind of God. So, you know, even though it's sort of, it feels linear, you know, the intermediate kingdom, then the final resurrect. It feels linear because that's how we tend to think. We're all heirs of the Greek world. We tend to think linearly. Um, we probably not experience it that way. Uh, we'll, you know, that's why, that's, why, that's why Paul talks about going from grace to grace. Well, for instance, if Paul were alive today, he might say, go from perfect to perfect. Now, that's bad English, but it's good theology. Go from perfect to more perfect to more perfect to more. That's bad English, but that's not bad theology. So don't diminish the intermediate state or the final kingdom. You, you know, you're not going to feel like you're in, you know, the presence of God 101 for a while, then the presence of God 102. Uh, that, that, we can't go there either. You know, there's some mystery to it. We know what the Bible reveals. We believe in the we, we, the way we call it. We believe in the immortality of the soul and the resurrection of the body. Greeks, by the way, in Oprah Winfrey, believe in the immortality of the soul. It was the Jews who believed in the resurrection of the body. Again, Ezekiel 37: dim bones, dim bones. They believe in the resurrection. So that's why we, as Christians, we have both. Both of that heritage making our sacred scripture come alive for us. Um, so we don't diminish one or the other. Something else? Well, as a trapped and linear thinking heavily in my life, once again, uh, after the resurrection, all the believers have gone already and are waiting for that. Mm. And we, those of us who have already been there and were resurrected, from then forth going forward, I'm assuming that people who die in the future will all be resurrected simultaneously. I don't need to know that, obviously. But well, yeah, you're getting in some kind of heavy-duty eschatology now. <laughs> Most of us put the resurrection of the body and the coming of Christ at the end of history, not seven years before the end of history. That's a whole nother. I've, 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 I've taken one year and taught Revelation before. So that's another issue. Uh, most of us in the Christian faith have just put past, present, and then. And it's all together. So, um, you know, those that, I quote Paul, it's always a good person to quote, those that are alive when he comes, um, you know, they'll, they'll be raised, and those that are dead in Christ will be raised first. It, it happens simultaneously. Um, I know there's been some difference of opinion in the last 150 years over that. Some people getting raised at one point, and then some more people getting raised seven years later. Just be a little agnostic on that. The church never saw that till recent history. Just in the end will be the end, and yeah, yeah, Connie. Final state or final 
<laughs> well, well, let, let me. Well, one you can go. You can go read C.S. Lewis talking about how God hears all the prayers of all the people at the same time. God handles that. Now you know that's where the Jehovah's Witnesses got got in trouble. You know, they believed 144,000, because that number occurs in the book of Revelation. They believed the kingdom was going to have 144,000, and it was them. But guess what happened? They got bigger than 144,000. <laughs> so now they're, they're letting people die and reign in two places. I think God can handle that. God, God does, can do better with real estate than I can. Not limited by time or space. Yeah, not being limited by time or space. Um, I do believe it's going to be rather full. I know some people out there think heaven's going to be me and you and three or four other people. But I think heaven's going to be pretty crowded. The images you see of the final kingdom in the book of Revelation are, are crowded. See, see, see tribes from every nation. Well, that doesn't mean that everybody that's died. That's right. Heaven, there's another place that's going to take some up. I will, that's right. One, one thing that, and I'll start closing on this. i got three minutes left. Back in the early 70s, all these books started coming out about how everybody was dying and going to the light. Well, me and my wife can tell you, everybody doesn't go to the light. That's not their experience. But what started happening after everybody's writing these books, everybody's dying and going to the light, and some of us who are Orthodox Christians are thinking, some don't go to the light. There is a book written by Dale Moody, a medical doctor. I'm pretty sure he's a medical doctor. Dale Moody, who did some study, because everybody's writing about everybody dying and going to the light. Um, he did a study of people who had near-death experiences who came back, and they did not go to the light. And, buddy, they changed their lives when they got back. Well, they, I mean, well, I'm sure they were nice people. Well, I mean, Christians. They, let me, I'll end on that. Um, you know, one of the things as an Orthodox Christian, and this just came to me recently, I don't judge any human heart. That doesn't mean we can't know something. If you ask somebody, uh, are you a Christian? And their answer is, I hope so, or I try to be. You know the answer is no, right? Now, some of you may be thinking at this point, I'm glad. Being, I'm not asking, when I ask you, are you a Christian? I'm not asking you, are you living an exemplary ethical life? That's why I'm not asking that. Being a Christian means you have faith in Christ. I hope that faith in Christ uh, that gives you eternal life, the gift of which begins here, that faith in Christ will help you live better and help you live more fully and help you live ethically. But being a Christian, they're, they're make, theologically it makes no sense to ask somebody, are you a Christian? And them say, well, I hope so. That's like me, that's like you looking at me and saying, are you an American? I say, I hope so. <laughs> Either I am or I'm not. Because it's not about us. It's not about our ethics. It's not about what we do. How many times you sung Amazing Grace? It's, it's about the gift. So I worry about people. Almost, it bothers me even to ask people, are you a Christian? Because of so many times I get that answer. I hope so. I'm trying to be. And that just tells me, let's do some theology for a little while. Being Christian is that you accept something. Now, I hope you live Christianly. Hope you live in the manner of Christ afterwards. But being a Christian is, again, don't ask me, if you ask me, are you an American? Are you a Southerner? Are you Caucasian? 
If I answered any of those by saying, well, I'm trying to be, I hope so, you think I've lost my mind. You know, the Christian faith is that way. It's first and foremost a faith. You either believe it or you don't. Now, hopefully you're getting your act together. So I love to say that to crowds because in any crowd of any size, some of you in this room answer that question that way. Just go and reflect on that. Go sing Amazing Grace and then reflect on how you're answering. You were blind and now I see. You're not were blind and now I hope I can see. You either are or you aren't. You know, I'm not asking you, you know, are you up there with Mother Teresa or something? I'm not asking you that. You either are a Christian or you aren't. It's, it's faith. It's belief. It's conviction. He's offered the gift by faith you receive it. That's probably the most important thing you need to know if you have any interest in heaven. I mean, the Bible is clear on that. By the way, Judaism is too. God delivered the people, claimed the people, took them out of Egypt, made them His, and then gave them what? The law. They spent a lot of time at Sinai learning how to live. God took them out of bondage, then they learned how to stay out of bondage. But they weren't saved. No Jew, if they know theology, no Jew will ever tell you we're saved by how good we are. No Catholic either, by the way, would ever say that. Those are people who just haven't thought very reflectively about the faith. God grabs you and claims you and, and leads you through the exodus and brings you out. Then he works, with, he works on you as far as your behavior at that point. That's the only way God has ever acted in Old Testament and in New Testament. Um, so yeah, if you're interested in heaven, you've got to get this one right. You said that some don't go They, they, they made record. They, they come back and said they were heading to darkness. They were heading to great fear. They were heading to anguish. Yeah. Because we talked about heaven being the joy. Mm-hmm. So it's hell, the absence of joy. Uh, absence of joy. I mean, you know, I know Dante added a lot to heaven and hell, but it's not completely wrong. I mean, some of our images, again, most of what we know about hell from hell comes from Jesus. Jesus says it's outer darkness. Jesus says it's a fire that never ends. Jesus says it's where the worms eat the bodies eternally. Yeah, I mean, all these images are being outside the love of God. If you don't want a relationship with Him, He will let you, he will, eventually He'll say, Thy will be done to you. And if you die without a relationship with Him, where are you going? I mean, if, if Hitler went to heaven, it'd be hell for him. So only those that go to heaven are those who desire that. And you got to desire Him. Yeah. How do you respond to someone if you ask them if they're a Christian and you know very well that they are not living a Christian life, that they say they are a Christian? Now, well, they may be a Christian who just need to get their, acts, need to get their act together. Are you, are you being judgmental if you try to help them see that maybe they... <laughs> well, my first thing is... Because I see a whole lot of people I'd like to straighten out all the time. My wife tells me I'd run the world if the world just let me. I, 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 try, I don't give advice unless I ask concerning adults. Now, I do assume you put them in a pulpit, you have asked for advice. I will speak it. i got adult children now. So it depends on my relationship to them as to how I handle it. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are a lot of Christians who, they're going to go to heaven when they die, but... They may not hear, well done, good and faithful servant. They may not get the applause of heaven. 
when they get there. So that's not about whether or not they're Christian. That's about, they were, you know, I did a meditation today with staff where I talked about push into God, pursue God, be passionate for God. Don't accept mediocre. Don't accept a haphazard faith. I mean, some people, yeah, for some people, and this is highly insulting to Jesus, for some people, Jesus is just a fire insurance policy. Keep them from going to hell. That's highly insulting to Jesus. Highly insulting to Jesus. Jesus is so much more. The life he gives us is so much more. So, yeah, I really worry about these people. They may be Christian, but they're just missing out. They're missing out on the joy that God has planned for them in this life and the life to come. Um, but, yeah, I'm a little careful. I mean, I've got people closely related to me that I need, I need to straighten out if they let me. But, uh, you know, John Wesley said, I happen to like John Wesley. John Wesley said, the Holy Spirit is the evangelist. We just second the work of the Holy Spirit. So I try to, we make disciples, but he has to make Christians. That's, that's a supernatural transaction, making Christians. Yeah, Jerry. On that, that note, I'd like to state, you gave us a book recently. It was the Nine Sermons of John, John Wesley. Wesley. Nine that's Sermons right. about Heaven and the Next Life. Yeah, but that is a great book. Everybody ought to read every one of those sermons. They were written in the 1700s. I know. I mean, he. Yeah, he he and he he's just an Orthodox Christian. He preached lots of sermons on lots of things. You know, there's a lot of good Methodist people who I don't. If you say, tell me the teachings of John Wesley, they just think John Wesley said, "Chill out and don't worry too much about anything," and kind of a bland Christian. That's not John Wesley. It's uh, the name is really catchy. It was one I gave out at Vacation Bible School. It's a collection of sermons that he, by the way, is interesting. He, he delivered late in life on topics of heaven, hell, the great judgment. And they are not, they're not among the best known sermons of John Wesley, but he preached a lot. Yeah, the title of the book is something nice like The, Un- the Unseen World, maybe. I don't remember. But yeah, this, everything I've said is just Orthodox Christianity. Anyway, let, may I pray with you? Then I'll send you out of here. God, I'm grateful for this group that wants to live well and die well, live in peace and joy, and find more peace and joy when they make their transition from this world. God, we thank you for the great gift that you've given us. May our whole life be an expression of gratitude. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.